Well, again, it's gotten quiet, so I'm sure that means it's time to go ahead and get started. I decided I had time to move the thing around today so I could get down here. I feel like I'm a million miles up there away from everybody, and uh, I like to be down close, and, and I'm getting tired of lecturing in class. We want to get back to class like normal, you know, and have a, have a good class, so we're, that's what we're going to try to do today. Let's go ahead and get started off this morning. We've been talking about the influencer, being an influencer. Here's a quotation that's attributed to a man by the name of Thomas D. Wilhite. He said, Let your life mean something. Become an inspiration to others so that they may try to do more and to become more than they are today. I think that is a true statement as well as we think about it. What we as individuals, what we as Christians are to do should be to inspire people, to influence people to do better. Better today than they were tomorrow. We are to continue to do that on a daily basis. I know that because I look at Hebrews chapter 10 at verse 24 where the Bible says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's an influence. We're to be an influence on others, stirring others up to love and good works. Now last Sunday, if you were here with us during our Bible class hour, or half hour I should say, we talked about a church. We talked about the church at uh, Jerusalem. We read the book of Acts chapter 2 at verse 47 where the Bible says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And we talked about the great influence that the church at Jerusalem had on their community. Now, just what caused them to be such a great influence on their community? We looked at a number of things last week. We will not go back and rehash all of those But just as they were an influence on their community, we can be an influence on ours. And at least we need to understand that we should be an influence. And we can do that by each member filling their place. Now, let me go ahead and say at this point that that's one of the things that we'll be talking about tonight on the video is filling our place in the body. But... As we try to fill our place in the body of Christ, we want to look at three things this morning that will help us to be a better influence, to be a good influence in our own community, okay? So what are the things that we can do in order to be a good or a better influence in our community? Number one, we have to practice what we profess. Sometimes we say that, practice what you preach, but... We'll just, you know, break it down a little bit. Practice what we profess. Whatever it is that we say that we are, that's how we need to live. Now, the story is told about a lady who was sitting in her car. She was behind this young girl who was on the phone. And this young girl was yakking on her phone, you know, like like sometimes people do. And, And so when the red light changed to green, she just kept on. She was not at the least bit aware that the light was where she could move. And so this lady who was sitting behind her, she began honking her horn, and just about that time the girl looked up and saw that it was green. Well, actually it had turned yellow, and she shot across through the intersection, but the lady who was sitting in the second car, she had to stop and wait on a light the second time. Well, she's sitting there, she's ranting, and she's raving, and she's just like she's pitching a hissy fit in the car, And in a minute, she hears somebody tapping on her window. And lo and behold, it's a police officer. 
And he has her get out of the car, go back to his. He handcuffs her, puts her in the car, takes her down to the station. And she doesn't know what in the world is going on. And in a little while, they come and they apologize to her. But the officer says, Ma'am, she said, I'm so sorry, but I just knew that car was stolen. Because on the back of it, it had one of these tags that says uh, uh, life, you know, uh, pro-life. And then it had one of these stickers that said, see you in Bible class Sunday. And then another one of these little fish signs on the back, you know, that represents Christianity. And I just knew it had to be stolen. You know, when we think about the, uh, the advertisers and uh, the people who are in that industry, they say image is everything. And in reality, it is. It is a, a lot. The image that we portray out in the, in the world, in our community, that it really means so much. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard this with my own ears. I've heard people make this statement. They say, I would never attend worship or church at such and such, such, and such a place, at whatever congregation it may be, because there are a bunch of hypocrites who attend there. Anybody besides me ever heard that? I wouldn't attend there because there are a bunch of hypocrites who were there. Well, I would say to that person, you know, well, I wouldn't let them stand between me and God because that means that they're closer to God than you are. But in the reality, we don't need to live our life in that way. If we're not practicing what we profess then we're not living an unhypocritical life. We're not being a good influence on those who are around us. Let's look at a few Bible verses, okay? Somebody read Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. I said we're going back to the old-fashioned. We've got enough folks that don't have masks on today that y'all can, y'all can help me out, okay? Acts chapter 1, verse number 1. All right, who's got it? Go ahead. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Began to do what? Jesus began to do, do and teach. What was Jesus doing? Well, he was practicing what he was professing. He was practicing what he preached. Jesus began both to do and to teach. Okay? Now, thinking about that same thing, let's look at Matthew chapter 5 at verse 19. Matthew chapter 5 at verse number 19, okay? Let's look at this. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Is there any correlation between what Jesus says here that a person must be uh, in order to be considered great in the kingdom of heaven and what we find Luke writing about him? What was it that Jesus, that, that we read about Jesus over in Acts chapter 1, verse 1? All right, y'all can talk. Y'all got that out of the habit. What was it that we found about Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 1? Luke was writing about what he began to do and to teach. And what does Jesus say? The one who does them and teaches them will be the one who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so, what is Jesus telling us to do? The same thing He did, but what is it He's telling us to do? 
practice what you profess. Practice what you preach. If we're not doing that, of course, we're in the hypocritical area. Now, the Apostle Paul is one who uh, would also write about that. Let's do a longer reading in in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. Somebody read that for us. Romans 2, verses 17 through 24. Anybody, jump in there and go. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness an instructor of the foolish a teacher of children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth you then who teach others do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing do you steal you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. All right, now what is Paul's whole premise here as he's writing? And remember in Romans chapter 1, he addresses the Gentiles. In Romans chapter 3, he addresses both Jew and Gentile, but in Romans chapter 2, where we're reading, he's addressing the Jewish nation as a a whole. Okay, and so as he's writing here, what is it that, what's his overall gist of what he's saying? You are... You're saying one thing and you're doing another. You're not practicing what you profess. And so... You know, he reminds them that they can't be critical of the Gentiles because of all of the sinful actions they're committing. And again, if you go back to chapter 1, Paul lays it out, you know, the sinfulness of the Gentiles. And we know that they were so sinful that God says he gave them up. As a matter of fact, three times in chapter 1, he talks about the Gentiles and he says, I gave them up. But now when he turns to the Jews, he says, hey, you can't be saying one thing and doing something else. You've got to be practicing what you are professing, what you are teaching. Now, of course, he's writing to them and instructing them about Christianity. And so not only is it about the Jewish nation in general, but in chapter 3, he brings it all together. So You know, he's talking about us. We can't be sinful like the Gentiles, and we can't be hypocritical like the Jews. We have to live our life practicing what we profess. Now, some of you may remember several years ago, matter of fact, it was back in 1989, seeing a video of this student who is in Tiananmen Square over in China. And you see the, the tanks coming toward him, and he goes out there. This is during the protests that they were having, you know, back in 1989. And he goes out there, and he stands in front of the tanks and stops the tanks. And somebody might say, wow, what courage this man had in going out there and staring those tanks down. Well, as you think about this man, is he standing for what he believes in? Is he standing for freedom that he was seeking and the others who were protesting at that time that they were seeking to have? He's not rioting or looting, but he's simply standing in front of a government tank trying to get them to stop from going in and crushing this uh, protest that was going on. 
And so people say he's so courageous, he's standing for what he believes in. When we see these kinds of acts in the lives of people, the courage that they may have, standing up for what they believe in, folks take notice, don't they? I mean, we're still looking at this guy who, what, uh, 30-something years ago now, who was standing there doing that. We're still looking at pictures of him and using him as uh, as an emblem of courage. But people notice us when we stand up. Somebody said there's power in sacrifice. And of course, when we think about the things that we as Christians are to live, there is some sacrifice in the worldly things that that we might have. But people will take notice of those things. Uh, It's a power that you and I have to have if we want to be lights in this present world. We have to live lives that, that appear to mean that we believe what we're saying, that we're actually, you know, we have put it into the heart and put it into our lives. Sometimes those people who are non-Christians in religious writings, they're called seekers. In other words, they're ones who are seeking for God. And a lot of the denominational writers will use that term. But here's one thing that I thought stood out in some of my reading. They say this, seekers are not impressed with spinelessness. Deep down, they're looking for somebody they believe is the truth to whose lives, uh, who, who live lives that way. They're looking for those who are strong. You know, we may sit in our pews today and say, well, I look over here and I see this big church that really stands for nothing and it's growing. And in reality, it's not. There are a lot of folks who run through it, okay? They run through it. But more people are looking for those who are standing for truth and right than for standing for nothing. And churches that stand for something, they're the ones who are indeed growing. They're growing in in faith. They're growing in number. They're growing in determination, And seekers, as we'll just use the terminology, they don't want to wishy-washy. They're not looking for that. They're not looking for watered down. They have to see Christians who are living as Christians, as individual Christians. And so if we want to be that good influence, if you want your family and your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers to see Christ and to see what He can do for them, you know what what they need to see? They need to see what Christ has done for you. And if there's no difference in you and them, then there's no attraction. There's no influence for good. If you're talking the same way and living the same way as those folks are, then you're not, in a lot of cases, practicing what you profess. Number two, we must be willing to go the second mile. Somebody asked, have you ever wondered how far it is to heaven? Think about that. How far is it to heaven? You know, they say light travels 186,000 miles per second. If somehow we could reach the speed of light, travel at the speed of light, we could get from the earth to the moon in 1.5 seconds. It's 186,000 miles or so. 
We could be at the moon in, in, in less than two seconds. If we could get to the speed of light, we could travel to the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, but if we traveled at the speed of light to get to Proxima Centauri, it would take us 4.24 years to get there. Man, that's a long way. 4.24 years traveling at 186,000 miles per second. If we were to travel to the star Betelgeuse, not the actor, not the movie, but the star, spelled differently. But if we were to travel to the star Betelgeuse, which is 880 quadrillion miles away, traveling at the speed of light, it would take us 643 years. You know, extrapolating from that, heaven has to be a long way away. But I would submit to you this morning that just because the universe is vast, because there are so many miles that may be in the universe, really and truly, for most, heaven is only a couple miles away, about two miles away. And you know what? That two miles may not be as far as some folks are willing to travel. Look with me at the book of Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 uh, and following. Matthew chapter 5, verses actually 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and add, uh, do not refuse the one uh, who would borrow from you. Now, as you look at those things that we read here in this passage, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and, and, and uh, turning your cheek, you know, if he, if he slaps you on one cheek, turn the other also. You know what he's saying there? Go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. It's easy to love those folks who are just like us, isn't it? It's easy to love the folks who love us. There's really nothing special about accepting a person of the same race, of the same skin color, of the same background. But in reality, we must be willing to go the second mile. The second mile in our home life. The second mile in our work life. The second mile in our social life. And the second mile in our church life. We have to be willing to do that. If we're not willing to do that, then we're not doing what Jesus tells us here in the book of Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. You see, those few examples that Jesus gives us in this short passage in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, these are not the only aspects of life in which we're to go the second mile. They're just examples. But you know what? They're some hard examples, aren't they? When someone slaps you on one side, how easy is it to turn the other cheek? We don't even like somebody to say a cross word to us and turn the other ear, much less turn the other cheek. And if someone takes from us, you know, we, we, we wish the worst upon them. 
rather than the best for them. What's at stake is our attitude. Being willing to go above and beyond what everybody else in the world is willing to go above and beyond. And if we're unwilling to do that, we're just like the rest of the world. And how in the world could we be influencing them for good? Because what Jesus said is good and it's right, isn't it? Right? What Jesus said is good and right? Yes. Y'all agree with me? But if we're not willing to do that, we're not going the second mile, are we? How can we go the second mile in the home? What about husbands in the home? You know, the first mile would be providing the necessities for your family, for your wife and your children. But the second mile in the home for a husband might be doing those hundreds of little unrequested actions that make, you know, for expressions of kindness and love, which uh, just generate goodwill in the family. The first mile for you ladies might be keeping a clean, well-ordered home. But the second mile is the little things that you do for your husband, for your children, that change the home to home, sweet home. I'm not saying that, you know, it's the wife that, that she can't work outside the home. We've had discussions of that nature in, in, in times past. But, you know, as we, as we think about in general, we're thinking about wives being homemakers, and we're instructed by God for the wife to be the homemaker. But, but it's more than that. For, for children, it may be the first mile would be obeying the parents, but the second mile would, would be going above and beyond in the acts of love and appreciation. In business life, it may be the first mile would be being honest and dependable in our business dealings, but the second mile for the employer might be something like this, voluntarily granting wage increases, being firm but patient, being businesslike but kind. And for the employee, it may be giving ourselves for the enterprise as if the business belonged to us. And, you know, putting yourself into the job, not just putting a little time into it. And so when we begin as Christians to go the second mile, you know what? We stand out like a sore thumb. And people will look and people will say, hey, you know, he or she is different. And they begin to watch how you live and you begin to influence them and you can influence them for good. In your Christian life, you need to go above and beyond. Go the second mile, portraying a true concept of a Christian, of Christ to the world, and letting the world see Christ living in you. But as I said a moment ago, sadly, far too many who claim that they would travel millions and millions and millions of miles just to get to heaven are unwilling to go just to. Unwilling to go the second mile. Then number three this morning, we must hold our tongue. I don't know if this one is any more important than the other two or not, but I know it is important. And I know it's probably one that many people struggle with perhaps even more than anything else. We must hold our tongue. Maybe you've heard about the guy who went to the blacksmith shop He's always picking things up, just couldn't help it. You know, he just had to pick things up. So he picked up a horseshoe that the blacksmith had just gotten through working on. Of course, you know it was hot. 
And so he picked it up and immediately threw it down. And the blacksmith looked over at him and said, did you burn your hand? The guy didn't want to look stupid for picking up a hot horseshoe. He said, no, sir. He said, it just doesn't take me long to look at horseshoes. (laughs) How many folks have a tongue like that? That it's too hot for us to hold. And we simply cannot hold on to it. We say, I just, you know, I just can't keep from responding. I just can't keep from saying something back. That's just the way that I am. How many of us are like that? How many people know somebody like that? Just got to say something. Might be sarcastic. It might be rude. But they've got to say something. I want you to look at a passage. Let's go back to the Psalms and let's look first at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 141. What I want you to understand about Psalm 141 is this. David is begging God to hear his prayer. For God to listen to his prayer and to answer his prayer. He's begging God for that. Now notice what he says. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted in an incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as an evening sacrifice. It can't be much more clear than David begging for God to listen to his prayer, right? But as you continue reading in the next verse, what's one of the things that David understands most that he needs to be able to do in order for God to hear and to answer his prayer? Look at verse 3. Somebody read that. Make sure that I get it right. Somebody read it out loud. Tommy, you got that one? Set a watch, Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Set a watch, English standard. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. What is David asking God to help him with? He's begging God to hear his prayer, but one of the first things in this psalm, in this prayer set to music... What is it that David understands? He knows that he has to be able to hold his tongue. If David was a man after God's own heart and David needed to hold his tongue, to have a guard set before his tongue, what about us? What about each one of us? Do we need uh, for God to set a watch over our mouth? Look at Titus chapter 2 verses 7 and 8. We know that Christians have to, have, a, uh, have to watch their speech in Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. In the midst of teaching what's right and doing what's right, God said you've got to be saying what's right. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. Why? You don't want people to be able to say bad things about what you say, about how you talk, about how you live. Christians must watch their tongues. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupt or corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. How much corrupting talk 
Can we, are we allowed? How much? None. And so, what have I got to do in order to keep that corrupting talk from coming out of my mouth? Well, David said, set a guard or set a watch before my tongue. Now, is God going to magically reach down from heaven and hold on to your tongue so that you don't say something? No, He expects you to do your part as well, doesn't He? We have to be the ones who are managing to take care of ourselves. Now, how can we know when we're not holding our tongue? How can we know when we're not? Well, we can know we're not holding our tongue when we use profanity. You know what the word profane means as is used in Scripture? It originally meant to cross the threshold or to walk on or over. And so in essence, when God said in the book of Exodus chapter 20 at verse number 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, he's saying, don't walk on my name. How many of you, when you go to a cemetery, try to go around the grave and not step on it? I don't know what it is. I know that you know the person is not there, but it just bothers me. I've got to go around the thing. I can't, I can't step on the grave. I've just got to go around it, you know, because I don't want to be... It's, in my mind, walking over somebody, walking on somebody. God said, don't step on my name. When we use profanity. Not only that, but we can know that we're not uh, using, uh, that we're not holding our tongue when we uh, slander others. The word slander means literally to rip the flesh, to intentionally hurt someone. Uh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 18 the one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. Let's move on quickly because we're out of time. Another thing that we can know that we're not, uh, how we can know we're not holding our tongue is when we spread gossip. Two definitions of gossip. Number one, saying negative things about a person when they are not present. That could be one definition of gossip. And number two, Telling a truth, this can be gossip as well, but telling a truth about a person that does not need to be told for the purpose of hurting them. That's gossip as well. First Timothy chapter 5 at verse 13, in, in talking about the younger widows, besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips, busybodies, saying what they should not. Grumbling and complaining. We know that uh, we shouldn't be doing that. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you are to shine as lights in the world. And then finally, telling lies. Now I want you to look at Revelation chapter uh, 21 at verse number 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, or murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and I want you to notice the difference in what he says about liars and the rest. And all liars. Ever notice that? Yeah, we, we run across that. All liars. Why didn't he say all murderers and all sexually immoral? But he said all liars. Sometimes we tell lies in, in ways that are meant to mislead folks. Not 
not necessarily not telling the truth, but just misleading folks. All liars. We can tell we're not holding our tongue when we do that. James chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. We've got to be able to hold our tongue. If we want to be an influence on others, so as an influencer, do you possess these three qualities that are so clearly laid out in the Word of God? As we close, when we find imperfections in our life, we must be willing to make quick corrections. If we see that we're not doing it exactly as we should be, to be an influencer is a good influence. If we see those imperfections, we need to make a change in our life. Let's close with a prayer. Holy and righteous Father in heaven, again, we're so thankful for the time that we have that we can study from your holy word. We pray that as we learn from it, that we can make application into our lives and that, Father, we can, that we can be better, serving you better, being a better example and a better influence on others. All of these things we ask in thy Son, Jesus' name. Amen.